Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today, I'm sharing a moving conversation I had with a dear friend of mine, Roya Rastiger. Roya is an Iranian-American curator, scholar, and writer. Roya and her partner, Moj, are founding members of the Iranian Diaspora Collective, which is a nonpartisan, multi-faith group amplifying the voices of the people of Iran. Roya is a beautiful thinker who reminds us that women's rights anywhere are human rights everywhere. I hope you will listen to Roya, learn as much from her as I have, and join in this most critical of movements to stop the backsliding of human rights and shift the paradigm of power to one that allows for all of us to have true agency. Let's get to my conversation with Roya. Well, I guess, first of all, it would be really helpful just for our marvelous listeners if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about your background, you know, I know you as a great friend and one of my best dinner party partners for your brilliance and your incredible, like incisive points of view about everything. You have a really astonishing pedigree. And so I would love for you to just, you know, let everybody know who you are. My background has been historically in like, as a scholar, as a curator, I would say as a cultural advocate, advocating for the work of people of color, women, queer and trans people around the world, but mostly based in the US. And you know, because of my work with Angela Davis when I was getting my PhD, a lot of my work is based in black feminist theory and history and praxis. And so that's really like the foundation of my work is around that. And you're first-generation Iranian-American. I always get the first and the second-generation piece confused. I was born in the U.S. Right, so you're first-generation. Yeah, so I was the first generation to be born here, yeah. And how do you think that 
the black feminist constructs merge with you and your point of view as like as an Iranian American? That's a really good question that I've been thinking a lot about over the last three, four months, because a lot of this push that's happening in Iran right now is one against the control of women's bodies by the police and the control of the police of the people at large, especially ethnic minorities, especially poor and working class people. And so I think that Black people have been fighting that fight for a long time here in the US. So I've really been thinking about that parallel a lot. Even like NWA's like F the police, you know, like I find myself saying that every day with respect to Iran now, whereas before I was saying it more with respect to, you know, in the US context, but now I'm thinking about it all the time there. Great, that's a, that's a good call out. That's a yeah. great a great anthem if you're feeling <laughs> yeah if you're feeling angry I'm like I just I've just been putting that song on but I also think that black women for a long time have been saying this thing of like until like the Combahee River Collective and I think it was like 1982 published this manifesto and they were like until working class black lesbians are free none of us are free and the point of that is to say that until we think about class struggle and set like struggle around sexuality and gender expression and race as all interconnected, none of us are free. And so this movement, which has its rallying call of Zen Zindagi Azadi actually comes from Kurdish people and it's originally Jinjian Azadi, but they've been in this fight for over 40 years. Right. And that's a, an ethnic minority in Iran and they've been marginalized and discriminated against and kind of killed whenever the police wants to kill them without ramification for the last 40 years. And so they're really the ones who kicked this whole thing off with mm. their work over the last 40 years. And Iranians around Iran are now starting to understand, yeah, we all need to come together across ethnic divisions across gender, across sexual orientation, across class status and all of those things, because our whole country is a mess. Mm. There's a very powerful unifying common denominator, which is like basic human right to life, right? That's uniting people across Iran. Yeah. And it's exactly that. And also it's thinking about freedom in a very broad way. So Shirveen Hanchipur had this song called Baraye. People say it translates to four. I think it translates to because of, but he goes through each line of the song is we're fighting because of this, because of that, because of this, because of that. And like that song really encapsulates what this movement is about. And it ranges from women's rights to trans rights to also like saving the cheetah and wildlife, to fighting climate change, to animal rights, you know, to like not treating dogs like they're disgusting. So I think there's a real intersection here around like this generation Z, because in the US and in Europe and in the West, one of the big things that young people are fighting for and concerned about is climate change. Yeah. And so the youth over there is also worried about climate change and the way that the regime is basically like sapping the resources of the land 
and profiting off of it, but leaving them with this kind of with rivers that have no water in them or are full of toxic, toxic poisons and stuff, you know? I didn't realize there was part of this was an environmental assault as well. Yeah. I mean, I think this regime is that corrupt. They've like, they have literally driven the people of Iran into total poverty by extracting all the resources that they can, like selling ports of fishing to China and selling oil to Russia and just like all of these different pieces. It's not just geopolitical. It's also climate based. Like in Venezuela, it's it's a familiar playbook, right? Will you teach us a little bit about the history of the Iranian government kind of post revolution? What was the revolution in 1979? What precipitated that? And how how was that able to happen? And 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 kind of what in the ensuing 50 years or almost has it has Iran changed like incrementally like was do you think when the revolution happened like there was there was a purity around that's been corrupted so the history is so complicated there's a lot of history here and it's a contested history because you know that's always the way it is with history it's basically whose story are you telling and to what ends but i'll try so In the 1960s, the Shah of Iran was rapidly trying to modernize Iran. And part of this was giving women the right to vote, uh, to participate in the workplace, uh, for women to be able to get married and divorced. Um, And all of these women's rights uh, start to cause a huge issue with the clergy and create this whole religious backlash. And so if we look back, we can see that Islamic fundamentalism in Iran really starts to rise up in reaction to women being given these rights. Meanwhile, the economy of Iran is booming, middle class is growing, and people want more of a political voice. But the Shah has his secret police and doesn't look favorably to people who are expressing dissenting opinions. Um, So the students in Iran, the revolution in 1978 was mostly led by students, start to really rise up to demand greater free speech and political participation. Um, so that's a huge impetus of the 1978 revolution that happens in Iran. My dad was actually part of that revolution, um, which he now regrets. You know, I think it was a really idealistic revolution in many ways, and that the students were really used, uh, that whole movement was really used by Khomeini and his clergy to turn Iran into an Islamic state. You know, Islam has always been part of Iran and Iranian culture, but forcing religious expression, forcing women to bear the brunt of that religious expression by making them wear the hijab, um, that was like a Khomeini and his regime thing. That wasn't something that uh, happened when the Shah was around, didn't happen before the Shah um, with with the other, dynasties in Iran. So anyway, what's really inspiring right now is that we're in the situation where it's not about world leaders or religious leaders duking it out. It's about women in Iran setting the demands for themselves. And what they want is freedom. We've been a very religiously diverse nation for thousands of years. Like Mm. we have had Zoroastrians and Jews and Baha'is Islam is not, it should not be associated with Iran as a one-to-one. And that's like a huge problem. And then 
the revolution happened. And for the last 40 years, 43 years, the Islamic regime has literally been trying to also deface Iranian cultural values and replace them with an Islamic identity. Mm. And what's so problematic about that is that so many Iranians that you see today, that you know, the majority of Iranians you know, have been impacted by this regime in one way or the other because they have been forced to leave or forced to hide their religion or forced to like hide all kinds of things because they don't align with this Islamic ideology, which is not native to Iran. Interesting. Right. So this was an incremental shift over the last couple of decades that there was this conflation that happened. I think the conflation really started to happen with the Ayatollah Khomeini. And which was when roughly like in the late seventies. And I think people like my dad, you know, like as you do in your late teens, early twenties, you're a little bit more radicalized and you're like, yeah, let's try out this ideology and see if that works. So like more of that, like Marxist is, you know, like, like extremist kind of perspective, but it's, it's not, it's a, it's an idealist perspective. It's something that maybe belongs in a book, but doesn't play out, you know? Mm. Yeah. Like it shouldn't play out in real time. And so the way I like to understand what happened in 78, 79 was it was like a bait and switch. Mm. So basically like Khomeini kind of rallied all of these young students around these ideas of kind of returning to an Iranian national identity, not selling out to like Western imperialism, those kinds of terminology is what was being floated around. And these young students were like, yeah, like totally, let's return, you know, let's return to that. Let's have more economic equal distribution of economics and all of those things. But then I think there was a bait, there was a bait and switch because Mm -hmm. then when he got in, all of a sudden women were like supposed to be in the sidelines and we started to lose rights. Women in Iran have been allowed to get a divorce and love who they want for hundreds of years, like so long. We're one of the first population of women to have these rights in the world. And it's something that we've had for a really long time. Mm. It's just the Islamic regime is so good at propaganda and like messaging that it almost feels like Iran has always been this way. Yeah. But it has not. My mother was at one point running around in crop tops in 78. Like, like I swear, like women were allowed to do what they wanted. They were allowed to get a divorce if they wanted. They were allowed to pursue education if they wanted. They were allowed to dance and sing and like everywhere else. Mm. But it, this wasn't even just with the Shah's regime. This was always, right? And Islam was always there, but it was there in the same way that Jews were there and Baha'is were there and right. Zoroastrians were there. Right. So this is essentially like the not the first revolution that's taken place since 1979. I don't know if you're characterizing it as a revolution, if that's the right term, but it certainly looks like it and feels like it. Yeah, that's that's the progressive way of that's good that it feels like it because that's what they want it to be understood as. There have been a lot of really great protests up until then, like very momentous movements. Mm-hmm. And I think this revolution is building off of the backs of all of those ones. Okay. One of the important things to kind of remember about movements and protests is that sometimes even when they get really big and then kind of go back down like a wave, it doesn't mean that all the movement was lost. Right. It's like the Overton window shifts over 
Can you tell us what precipitated this, the initial big wave? So on September 16th, this young 22-year-old girl, Gina Amini, her Persian name is Masa Amini. She says something about Kurds. She's a Kurdish Iranian, but she was forced to also have an Iranian name, right? So her actual name is Gina Amini, but her Iranian name is Masa Amini. So we call her Masa Gina Amini. She was killed for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly while in the custody of the morality police. They beat her so badly she ended up in a coma and then she died. And these two female journalists broke the story. In Iran. In Iran. And protests started. Young women and girls were just over it. They're like, we're, we're over this. Like our hijab like falls a little bit or, I mean, some people say it wasn't even her hijab. She was like wearing culottes instead of like full length trousers. So like her ankles were showing. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. And is something like this theorized to be like, is there a strategy involved from the Iranian government? Like, we don't like the sense of what we're feeling like from the Arab Spring. And so we're going to arbitrarily pick someone to do this. Or do you think it was just a random crackdown? That's a really good question. I mean, she's Kurdish. I don't know if the same thing would have happened if she was not Kurdish. She was Kurdish. She was visiting Tehran with her family. A number of the early people who have been killed, especially like young people, like 15, 16, 20 year olds, are have been Kurdish. Okay. So doesn't mean that other Iranians were not killed, but I think there is this attitude towards Kurdish people that their life is worth less. This is from the perspective of the morality police. Okay. So I don't think... I don't know if how like orchestrated it was specifically, but I think this generation, they're like in their, they're 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old. They grew up with social media. Right. They see what's going on in the rest of the world. They know that they are trapped inside of this country and that the way that this country is run is not normal or okay. Right. And they're over it morality police sounds it sounds almost like so arcane like when did this how how did that get established and and what is their purpose in terms of you know like that's a really that's a great question I think they were established with like after the revolution when Khomeini did that bait and switch on all the female protesters 
when at first, like they were protesting an equal side by side with the men, but then when Khomeini came into power, he all of a sudden was like, okay, now women are going to lose our rights. And also we're going to impose a mandatory dress code and all the rest. What was the reaction to that at the time? I think people were pissed and Kurdish people have been fighting against that for a really long time. But I don't know exactly what happened in terms of like how there wasn't like an immediate counter revolution right then and there. Right. That's a really, that's a question actually that has popped up a couple of times for me. And I, I need to go and look back into like what actually happened that even allowed that shift to happen. Massey Aline Judd has this really great reference from the Handmaid's Tale where she, she quotes from the Handmaid's Tale, like, if you didn't want us to be an army, you shouldn't have put us all into a uniform. It's like, it's so true. But the Islamic regime right now is based on three main things. One is mandatory dress code for women and the oppression of women under Islamic law. So like, women are the ones who bear the burden of representing what it is to be holy and Islamic, right? Two, being anti-American, and three, being anti-Israel. Mm -hmm. So the whole regime is based on these three things. And what Iranians want is a complete regime change that is based on national interest. Not anti-American rhetoric, not anti-Israeli rhetoric, and not on what women wear. The Basiji are literally designed to just police women. So is it true that... that I don't know what what's true and what's not true coming out of Iran because there's been I, I read that they were going to kill fifteen thousand protesters and then that didn't end up transpiring. Is that correct? Or we Thank don't you know. for raising that because that's part of the reason why the media is having a hard time reporting. Mm -hmm. So the Islamic regime is running like a super sophisticated PR campaign. They have people that they've hired all over the U.S. like who seem to be normal people, but they're not normal people. And also like tons of bots. So similar to like the misinformation campaign that Russia ran during the election campaign between Trump and Hillary, something very similar, but it's even more sophisticated and it's been running for 40 years. So they understand the power of the brand of Iran and PR basically. So they are the ones who countered when all of the, different people. That was a big day online. I remember Viola Davis, different Canadian officials, a whole bunch of people posted 15,000 prisoners are sentenced to death. And then there were a whole bunch of like bots and trolls and people who were like, oh, that's not true. There's a nuance that you guys missed. And that's totally true. What basically happened was that the, the parliament approved the judiciary to sentence 15,000 protesters to death. But they weren't actually sentenced. They just got the go-ahead from the parliament. Okay. So it was a really important headline because it was it's so astonishing. But it was really unfortunate that so many people claimed it as fake news or false news because it wasn't. And a couple days ago, the first protester was actually I know executed. I can't bear it. I saw he was the twenty three years old, and then yesterday, publicly, they hung another twenty three year old. And these these are you know the reason why it's so saddening is because these are young men who went out shoulder to shoulder with 
women, to sit, fight for women's rights. And so many of these people on death row are men. That was a huge unfortunate thing because those journalists now are, I think, afraid to even report on these things because it's hard to figure out what's verifiable and not because the Islamic regime's like people are gonna like come for you and like force you to kind of feel bad about it or say it's misinformation when it's not. The morality police was not disbanded. That was like a complete was not disbanded. Not at not at all. That and this is really something that makes you think about what is the role of the media? Well, this was kind of my next question to you, because why has the media been so largely absent from this? Is it because they can't fact check or is it because there's some greater conspiracy going on with like a nuclear deal? Our government's not media. So where's the United Nations in this? Yeah, all of these are really good questions. I mean, I think the media at first was very hesitant around figuring out what is verifiable and not verifiable, but it makes it, it makes you just think like a, an official statement from a totalitarian government should not be considered verifiable. Right. Because Absolutely. it's, it's like, it's a terrorist state and we have to start thinking about it. Any government that treats people like this, whether it's its own people or other people, should not be considered like a valid state. So yeah, I think that the the question of verifiability is really important. There's also like sometimes there's news that comes out that's like not real news. So it's really important to follow like the right social media content and and like social media influencers or accounts. But who should we be following? So there's one is Middle East Matters is really great. The other one would be from underscore Iran. But if you go to the Iranian diaspora collective.com, you'll okay. see a bunch of resources, including social accounts to follow that have consistently posted verified information mm -hmm. and also like actionables, like petitions, but also coming soon, we're going to be posting kind of concrete ways to be able to pressure governments, which mm. gets to your other question around how can we, what are governments supposed to be doing right now? But what are governments supposed to be doing right now? I mean, are we supposed to be sanctioning a country that is essentially conducting genocide potentially? I mean, 15,000 prisoners is a lot of people. It's now 18,000. 18,000 people. It's I mean, like that literally grew 3,000 from like three weeks ago. So are we issuing sanctions? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, it's a really good, it's a really, really good point. I know there's a big movement to just full on ask government or ask the US government to stop all kind of conversations around the nuclear deal. So there, there's a hashtag that's trending that's end GCPOA, GCPOA being the nuclear deal. So there's that. I also think that all governments need to start downgrading diplomatic relations by recalling ambassadors from Iran. And Have we, declaring, has nobody done that? No, no one has done that. And declaring Iranian diplomats persona non grata. The reason that's important is because a lot of these Iranian officials have gotten wealthy from the work that they've been doing oppressing Iranian people. And they are living very happily in the West all the while supporting the Islamic regime 
with their anti-West propaganda. But also like, for example, in Canada, there's like a whole bunch of former Iranian judges who've sentenced plenty of Iranians to death who are now living like very happily and comfortably in Canada. Same in California, same all across Europe. So these people kind of need to be identified and told to leave. I think a few weeks and a few months ago, some videos surfaced of Khomeini and different mullahs as like families literally like living the high life in London, wearing short skirts and crop tops and like all kinds of things. And it's not to say that women shouldn't be allowed to wear those things. They the should. Hypocrisy. It's just the hypocrisy. But the hypocrisy is really insane. Astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. So, you know, yeah. So I think that's one. And then the other thing is I think that the governments can start to like give asylum to political refugees. Mm -hmm. Or like to start to give political sponsorship to those who are on death row, like literally U.S. and EU governments, I think, can start to do that. And then I know there's a number of movements to start funding to support Internet access in Iran, because that's the other thing that the Islamic government is doing is consistently shutting down Internet to prevent the people of Iran from posting videos and from like really documenting what's happening, which is the other source of verifiable information that the media could be using to do their reporting. So somebody could sponsor like a Starlink or Elon Musk could just put, yeah. put them up there. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to understand what the Iranian government, not that you can understand yourself or speak for them, but what are their goals here? Like it, it, it really seems like the people are speaking and there's this furious unleashing of wrath on the people. So how are they hoping to control the PR damage for this? Like, what do they imagine the outcome of this is? Kareem Sajipur, you know, wrote a really great piece in the New York Times. There's also a really great piece in The Guardian that came out recently, which will both also be linked in the IranianDiasporaCollective.com website which speak to the fact that when totalitarian regimes that are terrorist states start to behave in this kind of way, they can't go back because if they start to show that they're willing to kind of compromise, yeah. for example, if the Islamic Republic now goes, okay, fine, like we're cool with removing mandatory headscarves, which this movement is about way more than that. But let's just say that they say, let we're fine to remove that. At this point of where the protests and the revolution is, people are just going to take it as a sign of weakness and as a sign of fear. Mm -hmm. So for them, they're like doubling down on their repression. And they've seen that like from even the Arab Spring and like they they've studied different political movements and and revolutionary movements and when the regime is forced to either make a change to cut towards reform or to double down on repression they're doubling down on repression that's their strategy and it seems like an impossible thing for to to kind of imagine and to push for total regime change but it's impossible until it happens, right? And there's no way, there's no way that we're going back on this. Like the Iranian people are like, they have killed too many young people at this point for people to ever forgive them. So what is the path? How can they 
actually overthrow the government? What would it take? I think that what I read this article and it and a couple opinion pieces that we need a coalitional group of Iranians who are outside of Iran and who are safe, who can come together to be the voice of the Iranian people and who can start to negotiate with governments around the world and start to represent the Iranian people as an interim until the Iranian people are able to overthrow this government and then to put in their own leadership. One of the things that people, that I've heard a lot of different people say, journalists and commentators, is that there's no leader of this movement and how can a regime change happen if there's no leader? Mm. Every time these extraordinary people come up to speak truth to power and to show leadership, for example, there's this rapper, Tumaj Saleh. There, he, he gave an interview in CBS. He was very active on the social media. He got taken in and he's one of the 18,000 prisoners. So every time anyone speaks up, including filmmakers, actors, actresses, directors, journalists, doctors even, they, they are taken in and imprisoned. So it's not possible for people to, that's not sustainable. They, what we need is to support the people of Iran as they overthrow this regime. And the amount of intellectual capital and leadership potential that's even within those 18,000 prisoners, once they're released, I have no doubt that Iran will be able to identify like an extraordinary group of leadership. Mm -hmm. We just have to get help them get there. And so there are some really extraordinary leaders in the diaspora who've been doing this work. And Masi Ali Najad is one of those leaders. She's been doing this work. She's a women's rights advocate. She's been doing this work for, for like the last 30 years. She was the one who kind of went to meet with President Macron and had him say Zan Zindigi Azadi and women life freedom and start to recognize this movement as a revolution. I think that's really the first step is for governments to just recognize this as a revolution. But it's hard. It's hard, especially for the U.S. It's really hard because I think everyone's kind of waiting. Diplomacy requires that they wait to see if this thing is going to fizzle out or not. But it's not going to fizzle out. There's no way the people of Iran are going to back down at this point. I mean, they have literally been beating, raping, killing, like hiding the bo dead bodies of these kids. Oh, know, my like, God. And I don't, I mean, I'm not even identifying kids as like nine, they've killed nine-year-olds. They killed a three-year-old in their mother's arms. There's reports of them saying, we'll kill our own women and we'll kill our own wives and children before letting this country go to the protesters. But also who knows if that's even propaganda or not, but it's just not sustainable. Like it, people will keep coming out. And the majority of Iran is under the age of 25. There's some crazy number of like 70% 70, 70 of Iranian population is under the age of 25. And to that point, like, it seems like this movement is really being driven by the young people, which are 75% of the country. Are the older generations who were in Iran before the revolution, like, are they kind of behind the, the, the young, the Generation Z people who are like, like, how are the older generations? Do you have any insight into how they're? That's a good question. I think 
There are some really inspiring stories of mothers and daughters who are going out, but inspiring stories always end up with them also in prison. Right. So are they, are they able to round up? Like anytime anybody goes out now, they're rounding up people by the hundreds and thousands and yeah, I mean, they're doing insane things. Like they're they're basically like putting their entire police trucks and vans in like the middle of a schoolyard. And I, that's against international law even. Wow. They're pretend they're using ambulances to round up wounded protesters and then instead of taking them to a hospital taking them to prison. But I think older generations are hesitant i mean they have not been the ones to go out to the front lines i think it is this younger generation who is social media first who sees the rest of the world and also feels like they have nothing left to lose do iranians in the diaspora feel threatened are iranians in america and canada safe is there retaliation against those iranians that have left who have a voice or a platform. Is anybody worried about that? I mean, I'll tell you for sure, me and Moj have been worried. Like our street light went out in front of our house. And for a solid week, I was like, is is this like the regime, like trying to set up something? Like, what? and on the one hand we laugh, but I think it's because we've, I mean, we feel so safe, right? But you know that there was a like a gunman armed with an AK-47 who was outside Masih Ali Najad, who's based in Brooklyn's house, mm. and the FBI kind of foiled that whole plot. But I think for sure there is trepidation amongst Iranian Americans and Iranians in the diaspora of like of speaking out because they're very aware of what the Islamic Republic can do. But I also think that Iranians at this point outside of the diaspora feel like whatever risk we face is mm-hmm. so minor compared to the risk that any Iranians inside of Iran face that like somebody has to be out there doing this, you know, so many Iranians who live in the diaspora, we're living here because we can't go back to Iran for one reason or another, you know, whether it's because of religious persecution, whether it's because we're LGBT or whether it's because of political dissent one way or the other, we're not allowed to go back. Right. You have started an amazing group that you've mentioned a couple of times, the Iranian Diaspora Collective. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Yeah. So Moj and I started this along with... Moj is Roy's wife. Yes. Moj is my wife, my partner, we started this, our good friend Musa Tarek from GoFundMe suggested we launch this GoFundMe to figure out how to increase media visibility around what was happening in Iran. This was back in early October. The media wasn't really covering it up until that point. So we launched this GoFundMe. It was super successful. We, like, so many friends and colleagues and peers started to contribute to it. We, I think we've, we've had, like, 6,700 donations and we've raised almost $500,000. And the idea around the the GoFundMe has become now the idea of the Iranian Diaspora Collective, which was to figure out how to unite Iranians around the diaspora across gender, sexual orientation, across religion, across like ethnic affiliation, 
to amplify the voices of people in Iran and to use culture and media to do that. So as I've mentioned about the Islamic Republic, they're running a very sophisticated branding campaign around Iran and what Iran is. So sophisticated that I think even I at times kind of believed that, it, you know, it's an Islamic state, but it's not as oppressive or as terrorist as I thought it was, you know, in, in the 20 years or 30 years that, that I've been living outside and doing work, I don't think I was even aware of how bad it was in Iran. I was more focused on the Western representation of Iran as a terrorist or as Iranians as terrorists. Now I see that there are definitely terrorists in Iran and they're called the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's the government, not the people. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a big shift. And so what we're trying to do with the Iranian diaspora collective is to use our skills that we've gained in the West for the last 20, 30 years, myself as a storyteller, Moj as like a genius brand marketing kind of ingenue to figure out how can we rebrand Iran and how can we really figure out how to amplify the voices of people in Iran and how can we create a portal between Iranians in Iran and people around the diaspora here and help figure out how to message this effectively to non-Iranians in the West and the media. Mm. Because this is a, this is like a, this is a cultural revolution that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. This is young Iranians, as you had said earlier, saying, this is not the Iran we want. The Iran we want looks more like the rest of the world today. Yeah. What do you think is happening? I mean, more broadly, just like from your sort of, anthropological, sociological point of view around this sort of backsliding of women's rights that we're seeing multiple examples, multiple countries. Like what the fuck is happening? I, I want to ask you that. What is happening? <laughs> because it's, it's insane. It's like how Roe versus Wade got appealed here and like even the fear that gay people have that like marriage is going to be undone or all the trans youth who are being killed here all the time yeah. or like how we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates which which speaks to how low health care is for for women especially even more so for women of color yeah i would really love to understand that because i feel like Secretary Clinton gave that speech back in like 91 that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. I really don't understand why it's so hard to understand this concept. I'm super heartened by the fact that this movement in Iran would not be possible right now without men and boys. Yeah. They are on the front line. They are taking bullets. Mm -hmm for the fact that women should be able to live the life that they want to be able to live. Their sisters, their mothers, their girlfriends, their lovers. I'm really, really heartened by that. Yeah. Because I've never seen a feminist movement where men have stepped up and put their bodies like on the line for that. And that's what's happening in Iran. But I would really love to understand from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the world that everything is rolling back this way? I think that 
there is a meaningful sea change happening. And there's this kind of rising up of the feminine archetype. And I think on some level, the patriarchal paradigms that have been in place for so long are responding to this major energetic shift that has been happening. And this, this move towards openness, collaboration, you know, these, these sort of classic feminine archetypes, like of the feminine, not gender speaking, right? It's like the, I, I do, I think that I've seen, I think that this is a response to the strengthening of this new shift of power that's coming. I mean, that's what I, I think the world would be a much gentler, more civilized place if women were more in power. And I think that's happening. And so I think all of this is kind of that death rattle of, I mean, at least I hope, you know, because, you know, I never thought that I would see us losing a human right in my lifetime in this country. So there's something strong happening. I'm just hoping that it's going to shake out to be a f- total reimagining of like the paradigm of, of power, like a, a full shift. And that this is just, but it's, it's very hard to live through and it's very hard to watch. And I think of you guys all the time when I'm watching this stuff out of Iran and I have so many Iranian friends, American Iranian friends, and I can't imagine what it must be like I mean, what is it? What has this been like for you personally since this started in September? I mean, Moj says you've been crying a lot. Yeah, I have been crying a lot. I've been crying a lot. I, I've been grieving. I think all, I think a lot of any Iranian who's kind of plugged in right now is grieving. Mm-hmm. And I actually should have started by saying that I want to give my condolences to the people of Iran, because at this point. Everyone in Iran knows somebody who's I know. been killed, and especially to the parents. I second that. I think a lot about being a mother and how hard it is to like bring life into this world, and how easy it seems to be for these police and the Republic to the Islamic Republic to take life and to be so like to desecrate life. Like I'm thinking a lot about just the role of religion and how all of this is being done in the name of Islam, which just feels so cuckoo bananas. Because this clearly, obviously, is there's nothing holy about what's being done right now. And I also think to your point around what's happening everywhere with respect to women's rights, I think that the reason why this movement is so important and why support from everyone in the West is so important is because if this movement can like push forward this movement that's historic because it's being led by women and girls, then I think that could be a sea change around the world for women's Mm -hmm. movements. And it also puts Russia in a much more weak position because Russia and Iran compete for oil. So if Russia's, if, if Iran becomes a free society and 
Iran's national interests start to take precedent rather than the Islamic, like rather than foregrounding Islamic ideology, if it really becomes about Iran's national interests, then Iran could be a huge stabilizing force in the Middle East. Mm. And that could be really powerful. And I think that's also the reason why, even if not on a women's rights basis, even if not on a human rights basis, if you want to look at it from a purely political, geopolitical and economic basis, it is to the world's benefit to figure out how to support the Iranian people as they call for the complete end of this regime. Because if this regime is able to continue the way it is, and it's working with Russia and China to be able to do that right now, then that becomes a new global superpower. And it's a terrorist superpower. And we don't, we definitely don't need that. Because we've seen, we've seen how Russia is, we've seen the mistreatment of the U- Ukrainian people. You've seen all the war crimes against Ukrainian women and children. And so this is like not just for Iranian people. This is a movement for women's rights around the world, human rights around the world, but also for freedom, like truly, so that we can all live free. So what can we be doing? Like, how can we continue to support the people of Iran right now? You touched on this earlier, but like what, what, governments around the world can be doing? What should we as citizens of the United States or citizens of France, what kind of pressure should we be applying on our governments and how? So there's a couple of really extraordinary people doing work out there right now. One of them is is a human rights lawyer. She's been doing a lot of work around this. I think there's a couple of people who are now starting to come together to figure out what are some concrete actionables that we can ask the public to do. Yeah. I think the first thing, and I can't overstate how important this is, is to just amplify the voice of people in Iran. So go to the website, IranianDiasporaCollective.com, follow the social accounts that are there, they're verifiable. It is hard to find like which are the correct social media accounts to follow because sometimes there are these kind of scammy ones that the mm-hmm. Islamic regime has put up. But we have like a, a quite a long list and you could just follow all of those. And then just to amplify within your own networks. So the holidays are coming up. It's We want to stay merry and like spread cheer. But the regime is counting on that to kind of start to ramp up executions. Again, they executed one per, 123-year-old two days ago, and they executed another one publicly. They publicly hung him uh, yesterday. So it's really important to just amplify. It's hard to look at it. And I understand like mental health needs in the West, but also the people of Iran have been going nonstop for like 85 days now. So we really do need to just amplify, even though it is exhausting, even though we are exhausted, even though there is fatigue, the regime is waiting for that fatigue. So we need to like not allow for that. So I think that's one. The second thing is just direct actions. There's petitions that are coming out and that are circulating. And then really this piece of pressuring governments to downgrade diplomatic relations, pressuring governments to give asylum to political refugees, pressure to governments to 
sponsor politically people who are on death row. So yeah, so I think it's it's a lot and it doesn't feel as concrete as I think it could be, but it's starting to kind of come into formation. But the number one most important thing is to just keep this on the forefront so the media doesn't get tired of it because we know how the media also wants a new story. And are you on the website you guys have, is there, are there sort of guides around also, you know, what to post and... I know before you were, maybe it was just like personally for your friends, but you were kind of like pointing people in the right direction of how to amplify these voices, yeah. et cetera. Absolutely. So people can also like follow me on Roya Zara. Yeah. I am infinite, infamously like not active on social media, but for the last- I've been months, lately. <laughs> yeah, for the last three months I have been. And also I would just say like, not to trust any Iranian who's saying that, that Iranians want reform. I think this is where it also gets a little tricky is that Iranians want total regime change. Jewish Iranians want total regime change. Baha'i Iranians want total regime change. LGBT Iranians want total regime change. You know, workers, students. And probably the majority of Muslim Iranians. Yes. I think people even who at this point, I think, consider themselves culturally Muslim Iranians want total regime change. I think this is like a, this is a desire that crosses over religion, ethnicity, and all the rest. And so I think that's just a really important thing to remember is like, there's no reform or going back or making like a terrorist government seem like, well, maybe if you guys just change this law and this law, it'll be okay. Yeah. This has been amazingly edifying and educational and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and it's so important that we all understand what's happening and what is the real will of the Iranian people thanks I would say thank you so much because one of the big things that we also can do is to lend our platform whatever Mm -hmm. platform we have so that Iranians Iranian Americans can speak to what is happening because this is a cultural movement that's happening. And for you to dedicate a whole episode of a group podcast to this is so important because it's a different audience that needs to hear what's happening. And your audience can make a difference because they can post and repost and amplify these stories to their communities. And I think that's so, so important for women in the West to be doing and all like all people in the West right now to be trying to amplify as best as we can. So thank you so much. I really am so, so grateful. No, it's really, it's my absolute true, true pleasure. And thank you. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with Roya Rastiker. For more information and resources, head to IranianDiasporaCollective.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.